Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 34, There and Back Again. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. I don't really have any announcements this week. I just want to say thank you all for listening to the podcast. It means a lot to me that so many of you are enjoying the show. To recap our last episode, Tupac Inca Yupanqui took the time to visit the Island of the Sun, the birthplace of Inti. The site was sacred even prior to the area being incorporated into the Inca Empire. However, Tupac expanded the temple complex and also added additional buildings. While we know Tupac visited the island while in Koyasuyu, we don't know exactly when this first visit took place. It may have been right after he put down the rebellion of the Koya. It may have been just prior to that final battle against them. Regardless of when Tupac's visit to the island exactly happened, I figured it was better to tell you all about it now, before the Sapa Inca's next adventure. So let us join Tupac as he addresses his army. Enjoy. Tupac stood high on an Ushnu before thousands of soldiers. Up until now, he had led armies as far north as modern-day Quito. He had taken troops down the coast, defeating the powerful Chimu and the Huarco. As Sapa Inca, Tupac overcame the darkness of the Amazon and squashed the rebellion of the Koya. We don't know how old Tupac was at this point. He had been on campaign essentially since becoming the heir of Pachacuti. And nobody gets any younger. If Tupac were to return to Cusco, who knows if he'd be able to lead another campaign, given all the governing that was required for the empire. He might become stuck there. Just one more campaign. Just one more adventure. Perhaps those were the thoughts running through Tupac's head as he stood on that Ushnu, asking his troops if they would come south with him. The Sapa Inca had little to worry about, because of course the answer was an enthusiastic yes! And with that, the spoils of the Koya campaign were bestowed upon his soldiers. Livestock, women and valuables were all given to the soldiers who had already fought so bravely for the Inca. Would they really have refused the Sapa Inca though? Let's not forget, we are seeing the rules of reciprocity in action right here. Tupac is giving the spoils of war to his troops for their commitment to this next campaign. Meanwhile, the troops themselves knew that more spoils awaited them if they were to continue marching south in the name of the Inca. Tupac Inca Yupanqui could not leave immediately, though. Chaskis had been sent back to Cusco to inform Yamki Yupanqui 
that the Sapa Inca wouldn't be returning to the capital for some time. Upon receiving this news, we are told that the steward of the capital saw that the proper sacrifices were carried out to aid Tupac on his latest campaign, and he would need them. Now, as we set out with Tupac, I want to direct you once again to the website. Unlike our Andesuyu episode, there are maps associated with this episode showing the path Tupac took. However, if you are familiar with some of our sources, you know that the path Tupac took changes based upon the source that you read. Let's be honest, this should not be a surprise to you at this point. Juan de Betanzos, once again, offers the most detail about Tupac's excursion, and I used quite a bit of his account. My modern source, The Incas, by Terence D'Altroy, provides some more accurate names of some of the places. But I think he misses the order of events given the location of the regions and groups Tupac encounters. Combining both of these sources, however, has allowed me to create a route that we can logically follow. This is also what I had to do for a portion of episode 32, Conflict in Koyasuyu. There aren't many other maps available that I have come across depicting these paths. So I do recommend taking these routes with a grain of salt. They are a general guide to the routes taken during Tupac's journey. Now then, setting out from south of Lake Titicaca in modern-day Bolivia, Tupac and his army moved southeast and came across the Churiguana, also known as the Guaranis, whom the Inca had heard were great warriors. But not great enough. The Inca soon subjugated the Guaranis and pressed on south, where another group called the Suri are said to have lived. The route led the Inca to the northwestern corner of modern-day Argentina. They did encounter the Suri, but also came across Rias. Rias are large, flightless birds related to the ostrich and emu. They come in two sizes, with the greater Rhea measuring up to over 80 pounds. The Suri use the feathers of these large birds as a part of their clothing. And if you want to see a picture of what this clothing may have looked like, there is a link in the show notes to a National Geographic article with a great picture of a young woman dressed in the traditional outfit of her people. We don't know if it was by force or persuasion, but the Suri were subjugated and Tupac continued on, marching east, that's right, east, to the Rio de la Plata. However, the Inca soon found the terrain quite difficult. According to Batanzos, Tupac did manage to reach the Parana River, a vast river that is one of the two main branches that forms the Rio de la Plata. Now this is the more western of the two branches, but if you look at a map, it is incredibly far east of the Andes. If Tupac did manage to make it to the Parana River, it would have been the farthest east the Inca had traveled. But that is a big if. 
because though we aren't aware of any groups that the Inca encountered, the terrain did not favor the Inca. In fact, Batanzos claims that Tupac looked at the Piranha River, took note of how wide it was, and did not seek to cross it. Instead, the Inca took his army along a tributary and back towards the Andes. The Sapa Inca and his army weaved through the snow-covered mountain passes, encountering some groups as he went and subjugating them as well. Out of the mountains and into modern-day Chile, the Inca found yet another group, possibly the Diaguitas. Whomever the group was, we are told that this one was rich in gold and ready to defend their lands. Of course, we've met many groups, quote-unquote, ready to defend their lands, and some have put up quite a defense. But over and over and over again, we've seen groups bend and then break. This group that the Inca encountered in Chile was no different. They were soon defeated, and the leaders were questioned about where they received that gold. Turns out, the area was rich in mines, now in Inca control. Tupac set up a garrison on the Chilean coast at Huasco and Coquimbo, and then continued to march south. It seems that the gold mines were simply not enough. Down the Inca and his army traveled, past what is now Chile's capital of Santiago, and towards the Mole River. The Inca had been warned that about six days south of this river, there was another powerful group of people. Indeed, scouts came back to relay that the river itself was wide and that the area was home to a few people. And this is where things get weird. According to the account of Batanzos, after the scouts had given their report, several Inca captains came and reminded Tupac that he had been away from Cusco for quite some time, and seemingly understanding that his captains wanted to return home, Tupac ordered pillars erected at the Mole River and turned back north. So, why turn around now? Let's take a look at some possibilities. Given what we know about Tupac, one can find it hard to believe that he was convinced of turning around, solely based on the urgings of his captains. And I doubt Tupac himself felt homesick. As far as running the rest of the empire, we do not hear of any rebellions from the sources, and we expect that Tupac was receiving runners from Cusco constantly about how things were going elsewhere. Though, if there were those disgruntled about being gone for so long, and rumblings of discontent occurred, perhaps this swayed the mind of Tupac a bit. There are some who claim that the Inca were turned away by the mysterious people living near the Mole River, the Mapuche and the Araucanian. Tupac hardly ever shied away from a fight from any group, unless conditions proved unfavorable. Personally, I have a hard time believing that Tupac would have turned around without having tested the Mapuche and Araucanian on the battlefield. 
And if a fight did break out, it is possible that the two groups put up quite a fight and forced the Sapa Inca to think twice about continuing his journey so far from any sort of reinforcements. This may be a strange thought, but what about the sun? Lauren McIntyre makes a good point in his book, The Incas and Their Timeless Land, about how uneven the length of days may have been to the Inca. Being so far south, the days were much shorter than normal. Now we aren't talking crazy south. The Malay River sits at around the 35th southern parallel. But in comparison to where Cusco is at, which is at the 13th southern parallel, it was quite far. Further north at Quito, the Inca were basically at the equator. Night and day were nearly equal. The Quito area will receive more attention down the road. Could it be that the presence of Inti play a part in that? So perhaps being so far south, and the days so uneven, especially if it was winter, made the Inca uneasy. We'll likely never know the true reason why Tupac decided to turn his army around at the Malay River. But it is very possible that there was more than one. Maybe one I didn't just mention. The fact is, the pillars that the Sapa Inca ordered erected at the Malay River represented what would be the southernmost extent of the Inca Empire. Now, Tupac just couldn't turn around and go. He had subjugated a vast amount of territory and had some housekeeping to do before he could leave. Thus, he called all of the lords of the area to him. The Sapa Inca declared what they were to do and how they were to serve tribute to the Inca. For example, you are to mine gold and send it to Cusco. You are to send warriors if I should need them. Once the lords agreed to these terms, silver and jewels were their reward. However, the Inca reflected on how fierce some of these lords and their groups fought and made sure to garrison the area to ensure peace. The Inca marched to a place called Copapeapo, just inside the southern edge of the Atacama Desert. You all remember the Atacama Desert, right? We covered it way back in episode 2. Though a good portion of the Pacific coastline is desert, the Atacama Desert happens to be the driest desert in the world. There are few, if any, places the Inca would encounter to wet the thirst of his troops. Before crossing, though, Tupac consulted some of the locals who told the Inca that whenever they would attempt to cross the desert, they would space out their parties so that when one came across a waterhole, it had a chance to replenish in time for the next group. With that information in mind, Tupac ordered the soldiers of Chile and Copapeapo to head first through the desert to deal with any Atacama groups should they attack. Because, yep, you can have people living in even the most inhospitable of environments. Tupac then divided his army into four groups. The first group, well, they got the short straw, and they had to travel north through the Atacama Desert 
along the seacoast until reaching the province of Arequipa in southwest Peru. The next group was to march through the central highlands. The third was to turn and head to Caxa Vindo, into Chincha, and then to Nasa Facoyo, where Pukar Usno still resided. Remember Pukar Usno? He was the son of Pachacuti who tried to jump over the fiery ditch during a siege and didn't quite make it? Well, that is where the third army was heading, where the body in Waka of Pukar Usno still held power. They would all then rendezvous at Hatun Koya, or Upper Koya, where they had fought the Koya in what must have been years ago. As for the fourth group, Tupac led it and forged his own path, and his is the one that we shall follow. Tupac decided not to cross the Atacama himself, but took a highland route. He came upon the province of Lippi, where he met a poor group of people. But though they didn't have much to offer, they did have mines with rich minerals that could produce some fine paints. Of course, Tupac subjugated this group, most likely through diplomacy, though we aren't quite sure. The Sapa Inca ordered the people to provide the Inca with those paints, as well as feathers from the rias they had nearby. Moving northeast, Tupac came across some of the large salt flats that Bolivia has to offer today. He and his contingent came to the province of Chuquisaca, where they met the Charcas. Since they were described as, quote-unquote, very warlike by Batanzos, we can infer that the Charcas were not necessarily too friendly to this roaming army coming through their lands. However, they were soon defeated and were forced to reveal the source of the silver they had in their possession. They took the Inca to a hill called Porco, where a silver mine was, and upon seeing it, Tubac ordered the Charca to supply the Inca with silver as a part of their tribute. Before we leave this area, though, I want to mention that I couldn't find the hill of Porco on the map, but the modern municipality of it. You'll find it just southwest of Potosi, the location of the great silver mine. We'll cover Potosi in due time, but I want to include that it may have been Potosi that Batanzos was referring to in his account when mentioning a particular hill. Now back to Tupac. The Inca and his army reached Cochabamba, where just above the town, Tupac built a tambo, Chuquiabo, or modern-day La Paz. Upon hearing of the gold mines present in the province, Tupac collected what gold he could and gave instructions as to how much gold the people of the area should send to Cusco. It doesn't appear that Tupac lingered in the area for long. He was near Lake Titicaca now. He may have felt that Cusco was pulling him to come home. The Sapa Inca reached Hatuncoya, the rendezvous point for the four armies. He met Group 1, the group that went through the Atacama Desert, and to Arequipa. Unfortunately, it appears that their expedition was fairly uneventful. 
but I suppose if you're trying to make it across the driest desert in the world, uneventful is what you want. Group 2 was also there. They had traveled through the lands of the, of the Karanja, west of Lake Pupo. Both groups brought sinchis from the people and towns they had passed through, and Tupac received these leaders kindly. It took more than five days for Group 3 to arrive at Hatunkoya, and with only two-thirds of the men they had starting out. It appears the Chichas were not happy to see the Inca stop by and visit, and sought to defend their homes. They must have fought well, given the amount of casualties that they were able to inflict upon the Inca. But they were defeated nonetheless. Sinchis of other groups were then presented to Tupac. Sinchis of other groups that Group 3 had crossed were also presented to Tupac like the other armies. With his army united once more, Sinchis from Koya to the Mole River and enough loot to fill a llama train, Tupac Inca Yupanqui began marching the final stretch of his journey back to Cusco. He had been gone seven years, according to Batanzos, though we don't know how accurate that number truly is. And I wonder what was going through his mind. Was he sad to end his latest adventure? Relieved to be back at the capital? Was he looking forward to getting off the litter and ahead to administering the empire? Or was he dreading the prospect of being stuck in Cusco? Questions the sources fail to ever answer. The Inca stopped at a town of Moina, about four leagues away from Cusco. They would camp for one last night before reaching the capital. That is when a Chasky arrived from Cusco with news. Yamki Yupanqui had died earlier that day. Despite the lack of insight into Tupac's thoughts about returning home, Batanzos captures what Tupac likely felt upon hearing this news. Although he was a very stern man, he could not cover up such sadness as he received the news of the death of his brother, so he wept and shed some tears. Yemki Yupanqui was once the presumptive heir to Pachacuti. Upon being passed over, there was likely some who believed Yemke would rebel against his father or perhaps Tupac for jumping the assumed line of succession. But that was far from the case. Yemke Yupanqui embraced his role as a mentor to Tupac, guiding the young Inca through his first military campaign in Chichasuyu. Later in life, when Tupac had become Sapa Inca, Yamki stepped in as steward of the empire as Tupac ventured out into both Andesuyu and Koyasuyu to put down rebellions. And of course, he stayed on administering the empire as Tupac pushed the boundaries of it to the Mole River. The next day, Tupac dressed in mourning. He put a black stripe down his forehead and removed his borla. The rest of the army dressed in mourning as well. Then they all completed the last march towards the city. Tupac's triumph over Andesuyu was possibly interrupted by news from Koyasuyu. He didn't have a tribute after pacifying the Koya because of his campaign south into Chile. And Tupac wouldn't have a triumph now. 
he refused. Yes, people still came out of the city to greet him and the army, but they were dressed in mourning, paint running down their faces from the tears they shed for Yankee Panky. The governor of Cusco received a burial fit for a Sapa Inca. Indeed, we are told that the funeral ceremonies were similar to that of Pachacuti. A guarqui was created to represent Yamqui when his mummy could not be present. His hair and fingernails were gathered and turned into a waka. The Purukaya was carried out, canonizing the Inca, just as his father had been. Such ceremonies were not reserved for every brother or son of the Sapa Inca. Yes, ancestors were mummified, but Yemki Yupanki received the full Sapa Inca treatment. This all shows how important Yemki was to Tupac and to the empire. The late Inca had a son, also named Yemki Yupanki. Tupac ordered that his nephew be brought forward. He declared that Yemki would be brought up and remain in the company of his own son, Titu Kuzi Yupanki so that they would be as close as Tupac and his late brother had been. Once the funerary rites and feasts were over, Tupac turned his attention back to his army. His troops had stood by him through numerous battles, traversed unique terrain, and covered a great, great distance. And now it was time to reward them. Thus, the gold and resources they collected over the years of service were divided up and the army disbanded, allowed to return to their homelands at last. But Tupac also gave gifts to the Sinchi and lords who his captains had come across during their various treks from the Malay River. We are told that Tupac married off several of his daughters to these lords and chiefs, forging a deep connection and alliance with these groups. The sons and daughters that resulted from these arranged marriages having the blood of the Inca running through their veins. These Sinchi were then allowed to return to their own lands as well, and we are told that they never rebelled against Tupac Inca Yupanqui. Speaking of the Sapa Inca, he had once again pushed the Inca Empire to its greatest extent. The empire would expand only a little bit more in its lifetime, but no one would conquer as much land or bring in as many subjects as Tupac would. But now, with his closest ally and mentor gone to join Inti, Tupac was on his own. <laughs> 